The Hennessy Report from Keystone Partners, a free-flowing conversation with leaders in the HR community, talking about themselves, the industry, and their work. Brought to you in cooperation with NERA, the Northeast Human Resources Association. Welcome to a special edition of the Hennessy Report by Keystone Partners. I'm Dave Hennessy, and today's guest is the keynote speaker from NERA's annual conference just a few weeks ago. His name's Rich Sheridan. He's the CEO and chief storyteller at Menlo Innovations. He is also the author of the book Chief Joy Officer, and their organization has been studied by thousands of leaders of organizations around the world. Rich talks about their very innovative culture in our discussion. They have no managers. They have a very unique way in which they manage performance and attract talent and onboard talent, things I haven't heard before. And I think there's some ideas that we can all transfer to our organizations. And he also talks about how they connect their employees to their purpose and how he helps other organizations do that as well. And now our conversation with Rich Sheridan. Rich, it's so good to have you on the podcast. Great to be with you. I enjoyed your presentation here at the NERA 22 conference. And I always start the podcast, Rich, asking people to share an early life moment that as they look back on it now, informs who you've become as a person, as a professional. As you know, David, I speak about joy in the context of work. And early on, after the books were coming out and I was speaking, a lot of people would come up to me and ask me, Rich, where does your joy come from? Mm -hmm. And I thought back to those early childhood experiences with computing and writing software, and I thought maybe that was it. And actually, I found out I had to dig back a little deeper, go back a little further, and it was a 10-year-old experience. Mom and Dad had bought a new shelving unit. It's out in the garage in a box, like sort of thing you'd get from Ikea. And mm -hmm. getting new pieces of furniture back in the 60s, not that common, so it was kind of a big deal. And I knew right where Mom wanted it, and Mom and Dad went out to dinner and a movie. I was home on my own. I was 10. And for some reason, I was inspired to go out in the garage and build that shelving unit. <laughs> Eight feet wide, six feet tall. And my no only, permission. No just permission. Just yeah. went out. I did it. You know, 50 little pieces of wood, 200 nuts, bolts, and screws. And I was so proud of myself. And then I realized, dang, built it in the garage and mom wants it in the living room. So over the next hour, I inched that thing out the front of the garage, down the sidewalk, through the family room, the utility room, the kitchen, put it right in the living room where mom and dad wanted it. My 10-year-old memory says I didn't hurt it a bit doing that little move down the sidewalk. Set up uh, the stereo, dad's books, mom's knickknacks. And when they came in the door, I had mom's favorite album playing. Set in the mood, too. Yeah. And she walked in and she cried just because it was so special. This moment. That you had thought yeah. to do those things. And I realized in that story, there's joy. Joy yeah. is serving others with the work of our hearts, our hands, and our minds. Right. And when we serve others with delight, that's where we derive our joy as humans. Yeah. I believe we are wired to serve other people. We are wired to work hard. So for me, that was a neat memory that sort of percolated back up when people kept probing me and saying, tell me where you're Yeah, where did this come with the roots yep. of this? That's cool. That's a great story. It really ties it in well. So you founded Menlo Innovations, not in Menlo Park, California. Correct. Um, this is Ann Arbor, Michigan. 
And you also are the author of The Chief Joy Officer, and you are the chief storyteller yes. at Menlo Innovations. And I have a question for you, because I know a word that you use when you work with companies, and then you've had thousands of people through to study what you do and learn from your culture. You ask, what's your purpose? Mm-hmm. And when you think of Menlo Innovation, what's your purpose? We want to end human suffering in the world as it relates to technology. And the particular people we are trying to serve in doing that are the end users of the software we're designing and developing. Uh, Most software tortures people. You know, think of the stupid chip reading credit card machines that are out there that, you know, you and I have been using credit cards our entire adult lives, and now it's a frustrating experience. How can that possibly be? And usually in a moment of frustration, people ask, did they ever talk to somebody like me about this thing they created? And the answer is probably not. But at Menlo, we decided we were going to honor the people we intended to serve. And that is our purpose, to bring what we call joy back to what we believe is a very unique endeavor in mankind's history, the invention of software. The delight that happens when end users start using the software our team creates and they utter the words, quite frankly, that every software engineer yearns to hear, and that is, I love this thing. I love what you created. We get that a ton. And that is the heart of our purpose. Yeah. And I know you probably have those end user stories shared with your team because you gave an example to us today about college and university fundraisers. Oh, yeah. How I love that example. Maybe you should share it. Share the story because I think it's, it's great. It highlights just what you said. A lot of times when we're at work, we forget what our purpose is and we're just going to work. We're going through the motions. We're doing the things that are in front of us, answering emails, going to meetings, doing the work. And every once in a while, that work becomes a grind. It becomes drudgery and you forget who are we trying to serve. I was really moved by this story. Any of us who went to college or have kids that go to college, every once in a while, there's these phone calls. Oh, yeah. Yeah. From your alma mater, oh, yeah, you know, right. David. Yeah, do you want to support your institution? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you know, and we want to get out of those calls as quickly as possible. And <laughs> yes, we do. Be polite, you know. I'll get these from the University of Michigan, and you know, you just want to. Nah, nah, yeah. Not right now, thank you. Um, and of course, you can imagine if you were the young kids that are doing that work day in and day out on the phones, calling people and getting rejected, probably ninety-eight point seven percent of the time. It must be hard must be demoralizing at times, must be discouraging, and probably there's a lot of burnout and a lot of exiting. Well, this one team changed everything for that group, changed the performance of that team with one simple singular event. They brought in one of the students who was aided by the work they were doing, and this student stood before all of these young fundraisers and told them of life story that had been changed by their work and just simply wanted to thank them. They couldn't have afforded to go to that college or university without their And it changed their life. Yeah. And from that point forward, the performance of that team soared. The connection. Yep. To the meaning and the purpose, like you said. And every organization has those opportunities. And we need to remind ourselves, who do we serve? What would delight look like for them? Right. I think it's so powerful. Great examples. Again, I mentioned you help so many other organizations to learn from the model that Menlo has created and if you created with your team. And you talk about cultural expectations, not cultural fit. Yes. Can you tell us why? Yeah. Well, we have an unusual way of working in Menlo. 
people who come and visit, as you said, we get three to 4,000 people a year travel from all over the world just to come see how we work because it's so different. And your audience members are welcome to come visit. They can just click on a link on our website. They can come virtually, which is easier now. We never offer those before the pandemic, or they can come in person, which I think is still more powerful. And they see this unusual work style we have, which is two people working at one computer all day long. Those pairs are assigned. We switch them every five working days. Mm -hmm. So if you and I are working together, we're literally sharing a keyboard and a mouse together Mm -hmm. all day long. Two programmers, two high-tech anthropologists who are our design thinking team, uh, QA team members. So we're always working in pairs at Menlo. Well, you can imagine that that kind of environment probably doesn't work for everybody. Mm -hmm. And a standard interview, uh, my old way of interviewing was two people sitting across the table lying to each other (laughs) for a couple of hours. Uh, Now we replace that with an audition. The audition at Menlo is we bring a group of people and we pair them together during the interview, one candidate with another, and then give you the weirdest instructions you'll ever hear in an interview. Your job is to help the person sitting next to you, who, by the way, is competing for the same position you are, help them succeed, help them get to a second interview. That's you setting cultural expectations. Yes. Right been, that at the very beginning. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of people would say, oh, you're doing a culture fit test. And I used to say yes. And then I kept looking at the team that was a result of this culture fit test. And I thought, there's no way <laughs> that this group of people would be collected because a lot of times, and, and it's a legitimate complaint, if you only hire for culture fit, you probably will end up with low cognitive diversity. Right. Right. You'll end up with a bunch of carbon copies of one another. Sure. So I began questioning this idea of culture fit because I kept looking at our team and saying, there's no way <laughs> that this group would come together if we were trying to cookie cutter our team. Right. And then I realized, no, what we're actually doing is sending simple, clear reasonable expectations for people about how we expect you to behave when you're here. Right. Help the person sitting next to you succeed when you're paired. Be a good kindergartner. Play well with others. Be supportive. If somebody's struggling, help them out. And what's interesting is humans can adapt to reasonable, rational expectations. Right. But how seldom do we actually ever do that in our hiring practices? We hire for skills. We hire for resume. We hire for because you came from the University of Michigan or something like right. that. You had the same professors I did. We don't even look at resumes when we go through this interview process. We well, you get at the skills in the next phase absolutely. of the process yes. because the next phase is a tryout. Yep. They right? come in Actually and they... doing the work in tandem, yes. but actual projects. They're working on work yep. with a – now they're not with a competitor. Correct. They're actually they're with, with a one of your – Yep. Team members. Yep. Yeah. I think it's fascinating. I've never heard anything like it. For example, I think they use these kind of auditioning type of uh, interviews for a symphony orchestra. Because what do you want from a symphony orchestra? You want players who know how to play their instrument in a group of people. Right. Right. Uh, Rather than individual heroes, which is, quite frankly, how the IT industry is typically built is on the backs of heroes. Right. And heroes don't always work well together. Right. And you you shared your own personal story of that, how you made the change. You said you hire fast, and this is a a quick process because if they make through that first cut, they get notified right away and they're coming back in for more intensive auditioning. 
Um, but you said you fire slow. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means to you, firing slow? Well, you know, number one, I always tell our team, if firing ever becomes simple and easy, we have lost our soul as an organization. And so if we're going to decide to let somebody go from the Menlo team, I always view it as there's going to be a tear in the social fabric. That person has embedded themselves in our team. They've worked closely with others. They've developed friendships and so on. There may be legitimate reasons they're not working out. Mm -hmm. But why don't we slow down a little bit, go back to the expectation piece, check in with them as a human being, mm -hmm. reset expectations, tell them where they're falling short, and then give them a chance to short up and right. you know I will give you one story of one of our team members who for quite some time had a serious attendance problem mm. when he was in the office terrific everybody loved working with him fit every other way absolutely Monday morning would come along almost regular basis you could predict that he wasn't coming yeah. in team started talking to him said you really need to make it in you need to get here this is important <laughs> no change in performance the team actually surrounded him at one point one of the team members because the way people tell us they're not going to be in they send an email to a particular address right uh to let hey i'm going to be out today right. i remember ian talked to this one team member and said when you sit down to write that email in the morning i want you to do one extra thing before you do it call me mm. Now, that's a neat outreach from one peer to another. Sure. Keely on our team, as this problem continued, said, I'm coming to your house. I'm going to drive you to work. I'm going to be knocking at your front door. I mean, so these the team members were making a big commitment right. to this team member. Right. And ultimately, you'd see a little bit of uptick in performance, a little bit better attendance, but still not there. And eventually, yeah. after months of this, the team said, that's it. We're done. Right. So they pulled me into the discussion. They said, Rich, this is the day. And this gentleman's name is Rob. We're going to let Rob go. And I said, OK, I get it. That's the way it works at Menlo. Team makes these decisions. But they wanted me in the room with them. And so they pull him in. They set him down. And they want me to start talking. And I said, Rob, let me tell you why you're here. Everybody around this table has decided you're done. This is it. This is your last day. Mm. And I paused and I said, and I'm going to do something highly unusual here. I'm going to countermand their decision. You're going to get one more chance. Wow. And I said, this isn't easy. And I'm guessing the rest of the team was a bit relieved when I said this because they did love Rob yeah. considerably. And I said, one more shot, Rob. I said, but the next time they make this decision, I'm not going to be here. They're going to make it and you won't be here. And for whatever reason, that was the moment. And the switch just flipped. Wow. And he became one of the best attendees we ever had. And just, uh, just that's a great sea change. It seems to me there's a lot of compassion. It's like, how can we fix this situation mm -hmm. as a team? How yep. can we fix it for this person before you give up? And when eventually, and we do, just to be clear, we don't hold on to everybody. Of course. When we finally make the decision to let someone go, I tell the team, as soon as you make the decision, switch your perspective on the human you're talking to. Stop talking to them as an employee, a colleague, a fellow programmer. Start looking at them as a human being and ask them what they need, how we can help. Right. And, you know, I remember one, one moment where we 
it was actually our interview process and somebody was going through the three-week trial part of it. And they were doing okay, but they weren't making it. They kept giving the person feedback, and the feedback probably wasn't explicit enough. I think it was a type of feedback like, David, you're doing great. You just got these three things to work on. you yeah. know. And then the next week, we'd give you more. David, <laughs> everything's going well, except remember those three things. Yeah. And then by the third week, because you made no progress on the three things, I said, David, sorry, it's not going to work out. Right. And of course, you're like, no, no, you told me, right? And right. I said, well, let's flip that conversation around next time. Like, you know, David, there's three things you're doing that if you don't make improvement in the next three weeks, we're not going to keep you. By the way, you're doing okay. But just know that this is existential. Yeah. So we've learned to do that better. But they brought this young man in and they told him he wasn't going to go out and he wasn't going to be extended a full-time employment offer. And then he looks at him, he says, oh, I just quit my other job two days ago. Because I thought I was doing great. And so the team comes to me and they're devastated because they thought, oh, my gosh, we really screwed this guy over. You know, yeah. he just quit his job and now this. And, right. and uh, I remember it was Keely again. And she just looked at me with these puppy dog eyes and she said, what should we do? And I looked at her and I said, boy, it sucks to be you right now, doesn't it? <laughs> She's like, what? What do you mean? I said, well, I said, you know, this is a good lesson learned. I said, what does he need right now? I said, what do you mean? What, is she, what does he need? I said, what's his greatest need right at the moment? Mm. I said, well, he needs a job. I said, awesome. I said, you guys made the right decision. We're not going to keep him on here, but send him to me. I've got a pretty expansive network. There was nothing wrong with him. I said, let me work with him and see if I can find him a job. Right. So another fit, right? I said, let's start thinking about him as the human. That's great. Great message. You talk about, let's do the experiment. Can you think of an experiment that went poorly and what you'd learn from it? Well, a year ago, probably like every other company on the planet, we ran an experiment that kind of blew up in an instant. You're all coming back to work. <laughs> <laughs> and I think two people quit like that. And at that point, we're like, okay, <laughs> enough of that experiment. Let's let's switch gears. Yeah. And uh, you know, we we ended up being far less command and control, which isn't our style typically, anyways. But we thought, but your culture is a very in-person culture, like yeah. you talked about working in dyads and absolutely. It was, and so then we just started having one-on-one -on -one discussions with team members. Tell us how you're feeling. What do you think about this? And it ranged across the map. Like I actually found out I really like working at home. It's really convenient. Right. I saved my commute time. I like being with my cats, uh, you know, and others were just afraid still, right. afraid of the real possibilities that the pandemic presented them. So we stepped back, we learned to listen, and now we're working our way through a whole different sequence to see if we can get people back in the office. And how about a run the experiment that you've done that really surprised you positively. Something that happened that was like, I I did not expect that. <laughs> There's many unusual aspects of Menlo. So I'll just describe this briefly. We have no bosses at Menlo. So there's no reporting relationship. So the only way you make more money at Menlo is your peers decide to give you feedback and, and decide whether yeah, you move up world, to the yeah. next pay level. Yeah. And we've done that throughout our history. And everybody knows what each other gets paid. Yep. It's well, in, in the last 10 years, we started exposing that to the whole team. So, right, right. you know, and that helps a lot, actually. The right. transparency there is just yeah. mind-blowingly powerful. Mm -hmm. We went into the pandemic 
There's a lot of economic negative effects of the pandemic on us. So we kind of shut down all raises of promotions. We were just in survival mode. And as we're coming out, people are like, okay, we haven't done this for a while. Let's start doing it again. And the team recognized, you know, we we need to do a better job at giving feedback. We need to be a little more structured, a little more organized. So they started a project that we ultimately dubbed Prosperity. We always give internal code names to our project. Mm -hmm. And the only instructions I gave to the team, because normally I, I like those kind of discussions. I like to be involved in them. And I said, no, let's let the team run this one. And the only instructions I gave them was, do not make this about raises and promotions. Make it about the personal growth of each team member. Mm -hmm. The other stuff will naturally follow. And the system they came up with on their own, oh my gosh, it is. Can mind. you give us a little, like you can't probably yeah. share the whole thing, but what's yeah. one component? Well, the good news is if you're really curious about how we do this, we now do a public tour once a month on how prosperity works. Oh, so people can get So you can okay. just go look at it. Suffice it to say that it takes place over a couple of lunchtimes. First time your peers get together and they make sure there's people you work directly with, people you work indirectly with, you depend on your work, people who are superior to you in terms of their levels, mm -hmm. people who are newer than you in terms of their levels, kind of and make sure, yeah, you're getting a good rounded feedback from about a half a dozen mm -hmm. to eight of your peers. They gather together, they assemble the notes, and then there's two people selected on the team to deliver the news to you about they called it, we don't call it this, but I just, I want them to call it this. So maybe I'll introduce <laughs> this glows and grows, right? <laughs> yeah. Where are you doing really well and what do you need to work on? And the team does a superb job. I mean, I think back in my old managerial life, how much it sucked to do annual performance reviews, right? right, right. And, you know, ruined everybody's December, the boss and workers included. And of course, yeah, I look at Menlo and you think about how we work in pairs and switch the pairs every five days. Who on earth would know better how you're actually doing than your peers? Right. I mean, I can see you from afar. I can bump into you in the coffee room. But the people working right with you yeah. every day. Yeah, The people right. who are depending on you, the right. people who are growing because they're intersecting with you or the people who are frustrated with some of the things you do. Right. Why don't we get them to figure out how to share it? And the real beauty of the growth that happens in this isn't just for the person getting the feedback. It's also for the people giving the feedback. We just did one the other day for one of our most senior people. Michelle's been with us for 15 years. And one of the people in this session was Lee, who's only been with us for two months. Now, imagine that. You're in a re performance evaluation and Lee is giving feedback on Michelle. Well, why would we want Lee giving feedback on Michelle? Because Lee is being mentored by Michelle. Right. Right. So we want to hear how did Michelle do in helping in the you grow into the team? Right. right. And Lee did a great job of participating. In That's that. really cool. I know you have the question all the time about scaling this because you're a smaller organization. And I think people listening might say, Oh, yeah, he can do it. I don't know how many employees yes, you have now, but 50, 50 employees, yep. you know, and, and before the pandemic, they're all in the same room. They can do this kind of stuff. But you have a good answer. Tell us how we can scale using these kinds of ideas inside our organizations. My simple message is you don't need to change the world. You just need to change your world. Mm -hmm. Change yourself. Mm -hmm change the people around you, you will become the effect you're hoping will spread. Because quite frankly, and I know how it works in big corporations, I used to be in there. Right. What happens is, you know, you've got your little unit and it's humming along and it's having joy and people are you know, excited to be there and you're not having any trouble hiring. And then people inside the corporation start requesting transfers to your group from their boss. 
And their yeah. boss comes, David, why are you recruiting my people? So I'm not recruiting your people. What do you mean? Well, everybody on my team wants to go work for you. And all you have to say is, well, come see. But if I show you what we're doing, that's different than what you're doing. And Maybe there's the some way. lessons here. Yeah, that's good. And it becomes, it's hard to use this word in the pandemic, becomes a bit of a contagion, but a positive contagion, <laughs> right? right? You know, you start spreading ideas, uh, powerful, positive, joyful ideas throughout an organization. Because quite frankly, I mean, yes, Menlo is a small company. Now, our customers are very big. So we're plugging Menlo into some of the largest corporations on the planet. Mm. We don't have to be different because we're plugging Menlo into General Motors Corporation, right. for example. We can still be Menlo. If you look at typical large organizations, they're typically comprised of little 50-person fiefdoms, mm -hmm. all flying the same flag in general, but each unit is its own independent unit. So focus on, again, yourself and the people around you. See what happens. Do you measure joy? Is that something you can measure in your organizations? The trouble with those kind of questions in general is, you know, the typical phrase of what you measure doesn't matter and what matters you can't measure. But for us, there's two easy measures for me. One is when I walk into the room. It is palpable. You hear the laughter, you see the camaraderie, you feel the human energy. It's just it's like being at the New York conference. Right. It was charged. Yes. I mean, the whole time you guys were active, you were sharing ideas, you were collaborating with one another. You don't need a meter. You don't need a, a KPI yeah. indicator. You can just <laughs> feel that. And yeah. so that's important to right. sense that. And, you know, you can also sense the opposite. You know, I that's tell true. a story in my first book about a company I went in to visit. It was a Friday afternoon. I was sitting in the lobby, but it was sort of in the office area. And it was so quiet in there. My ears were ringing and I thought, oh, well, it's Friday afternoon. Everybody's left. And then the CEO comes to get me to take her to her office. And we walked through the cube farm. There was a human being in every cube. Silently clicking away on their yeah. cube. Like, oh, my gosh, it was soul sucking. Yeah. Right. And so that's one aspect. And the other is the effect we have in the world. When we deliver the software we design and develop on behalf of our business customers, we eventually hear back from the end users, and it is almost universal response. I love this. Software. Right, that's it's the delight that you talk yep. about, and that's your measurement. Yes, to see the work of your heart. I mean, it's like the bookshelf with my mom, right? right. When she cried, she cried out of joy, right? Because right. she didn't expect that. That's the kind of purpose-driven delight that a team, when they feel it when they deliver that to the world right. their human energy just rises you know i was going to ask you a question how do you make the connection between culture and joy and your organization performance and i think you answered it in that answer there's not it is not unusual for us to do one to three tours a day at Menlo. people coming from all over the world you know a lot of people ask us isn't that distracting we have all these tour guests coming in and it, it never is uh, because the team appreciates being able to share their story with the world. Right. But imagine how it feels. You're this little 50 person software company in Ann Arbor and people are flying in from New Zealand or yeah. we had a group of 40 executives come in from Sri Lanka of all places and spend two days with us. And all they're doing is this is amazing. I, I can't believe you thought of this. <laughs> Think how that feels for our team to be reminded that the thing they're working in is special, right? It's different, right? It's compelling. It's compelling enough for people to spend time and money 
to come see it mm. and that they hang on the words of every member of our team mm. because everybody at Menlo is a storyteller. That's your title. Yes. It enhances the culture of mm -hmm. these tours because they're yep. all storytellers. Because the tours are happening in the space. It dawned on me one point, the audience for the stories is my team because I'm giving tours if I'm leading the tour and I'm telling stories about Menlo's history, how it all works, right. and I'm doing it in proximity to the people who work there. Right. And I can assure you this holds me accountable because I never want somebody to come up to me after a tour and say, Rich, yeah. that company you were describing on the tour sounds amazing. <laughs> Where are they located? Because I want to work there. Yeah. And so, you know, I can't take people around on a tour in front of my team three times a day and be telling a lie about how everything right. works. Again, this is how you reinforce culture. You tell stories of woe, you tell stories of triumph, right. you tell stories of a visionary future, you know, where are we headed from here? Do they have a chime in? Like you might have a teammate that says, oh, Rich, you forgot to tell them this. Oh, what? yes. It was funny because I was kind of a tower of knowledge for a while as a storyteller. I was leading a lot of tours because I'm free. They're actually doing billing work. But the team said, hey, this is a risk. You're doing too many of them. We're not spreading the knowledge of how to lead tours and that sort of thing. So they started pairing me. Right. Once I learned to be quiet, which is hard for me, <laughs> and let them tell stories, there were two kinds of stories they told. One was their version of my stories. But then I started hearing their stories, stories I would have never witnessed because I'm not omnipresent. I'm not omniscient. There's stuff happening in the room right. I never hear about. And then I started learning more about Menlo. Huh. These tours are like a core to the company. Mm -hmm. My sixth point on how to build an intentionally joyful culture is become storytellers. Yeah. And it is everybody. a critical element of leadership. Right. Stories are a tale as old as human history. Nobody's going to listen to a PowerPoint with charts and slides and graphs. They just glaze right. over. All right. We are coming to a little bit to the end. We have the nearer question of the podcast. What advice would you give to HR professionals that want to do more of what you do. You know, they probably have to do some compliance things, but they love culture. We don't have an HR department in Menlo, yeah. but the way the team describes it is everyone's an HR. Right. right. And I think that's a better place to be, a mm. better mindset is, you know, we're all in HR. Right. We better care about each other. Right. This is how we do HR. Right? Yep. And so let me tell you the other side of the equation and then realize that uh, it contains the answer to your question. Mm. I get a lot of people come to me and they're just, they're hurting like I was in the early part of my career mm. where they hear my trough of disillusionment story and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm right where you are. Right, your, da where your daughter. Yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah, then yeah. taking long drives to work and not wanting to get to the office and right, all that right, kind of right. stuff. And like, how do I get started? Where do I go? And I said, you know what? Find an HR partner. Somebody who really cares deeply about the people in HR and combine forces with them. Become a pair with your HR partner and see if you can start making changes in the world. And so to flip that around, be the HR partner to somebody inside your organization who is disillusioned, who is frustrated, who isn't getting the results they want to expect in the business. Uh, so find that equation. ready partner. Yeah, that willing volunteer. You know, I was ready to give up at many right. times, right. even when I was starting to run some serious experiments. And I will say that today, one of the awards given was a mentor. Award. Mm -hmm. A key mentor of mine was my old boss at Interface Systems, Bob Nero. I was the VP. He was the CEO. And uh, there were times when I was making these 
big changes that it's hard making changes and you get tired and you wonder, is it going to work? Why isn't going faster? How come I'm not farther Mm -hmm. along? And every time I doubt it, Bob would put his gentle hand on my shoulder and whisper in my ear, you're doing the right thing, Rich. Mm. Keep going. I got you covered. Right. And that's what you need. Yeah. You need somebody like that. Yep. Yep. And sometimes that HR person can be that partner, that mentor. That's good. Good advice. Um, What advice would you give to your 30-year-old self if you could write, dear Rich, career, professional advice? Stop worrying. You're going to be okay. And what's something you want to make sure you don't leave undone and that over the next 10 years? I turned 65 a couple of weeks ago. Happy birthday. Thank you. And, uh, you know, traditionally that number uh, says I was growing up, that's the retirement. Number. That's right. You know, 65 and out, you know, mm-hmm. get to get the watch, get the little <laughs> plaque and be on your way, have the big dinner. And of course, I don't feel like that. I guess 65 is the new 45. Uh, So I think, you know, I still have a lot of years ahead of me. But the one thing that intrigues me from a personal growth standpoint is I want Menlo to survive me. I want it to outlive me, Mm -hmm. outlive me (laughs) from a work-life perspective. And Sure. sure, outlive me in a life perspective as well. And exactly how to do that has to be as different a transition as Menlo is as different a company. Mm-hmm. If my co-founder and I were to sell Menlo to one of the big five consulting firms or something, right. it'd be dead in a week. Right. Right. And so I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that to the people. I want to figure out a, and we're and we're doing a good job on what I'm about to describe. Grow that next generation mm-hmm. of leaders, and, and then figure out for me personally how do I continue to just keep stepping back and stepping out and getting more letting and more, them giving leave. more and more your yep. to others yeah and it looks a lot like that thing i described earlier with the prosperity project where i just gave them the simplest instructions and then stepped away right make it about personal growth of the team members go that was it that's great rich if you could go to dinner with anyone in the world who you don't know who would it be and why i want to go to dinner with katie from <laughs> From HubSpot. <laughs> yeah, from HubSpot. Oh, she yes. Is, she is just amazing. She um, really is. Katie just won, for those of you listening, just won the John D. Erdland HR Award. And we're really proud of her at NERA. Um, so glad to have her to accept it. Might be somebody like uh, a Patrick Lencioni and spend time with sure. him. He knows us. I know him. We've had a chance to talk for a few minutes together. But yeah. I would really just love to spend time with somebody like that. Yeah, that's a good one. And, and share stories. Yes. And one last question. What's something interesting about you that you like to share with our audience that we won't find on your LinkedIn profile, or your bio? I am an avid, but not as good as I want to be golfer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can second that. I'm the same. Yeah. Yeah, but I love the game and I love playing with my co-founder. We're in a league together and Mm -hmm. I love playing with my kids that play golf and my son-in-laws that play golf. And, uh, uh, you know, so uh, that's probably something that doesn't show up just anywhere. Well, it's been so great having you on the Hennessy Report. It's been so great having you here at NERA for this week. Uh, Everybody's really responded to well to your messages and great to meet you. This was a conference I was really excited about coming to. And I think it was just because the thoughtfulness that was done 
with Nancy Pearson in particular, oh, yes. to get ready to come here. I mean, Nancy's very thorough. She's very passionate about what happens. And I could just tell, this one's going to be special. Yes. And it was. It was. Uh, let me just say to you and to the NARA group and to this community, thank you. Thank you for honoring me the way you did. Thank you, Rich. Thank you for listening to the Hennessy Report from Keystone Partners. Be sure to subscribe to listen to all of our conversations with leaders in HR. Go to keystonepartners.com and click on the podcast button.